Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United States, India, Brazil, Myanmar, Germany, and a see you in hell that's the celebration of the death of a dead right-wing figure from Mexico. Going to start out with the United States. There is news reported that Clarence Thomas, a member of the Supreme Court of the United States, the highest court in the United States, has been accepting bribes. He and his family have been sent on numerous, incredibly expensive vacations. We're talking vacations whose expenses would really probably be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. They've been sent on these incredibly expensive vacations by big-time GOP donors. And what's worse, Clarence Thomas has not disclosed these visits at all. These donations and gifts have almost unquestionably cemented his position as a far right-wing judge. Recall that Clarence Thomas is one of the most right-wing members of the United States Supreme Court today. Thomas's actions, not accepting the bribes necessarily, but failing to disclose them, seem to be violating a post-Nixon law that requires judges and other federal officials to disclose these kinds of things. It remains unclear whether or not Thomas will face any sort of prosecution for this, or whether he could be removed from the Supreme Court, which the United States Congress is enabled to do. A lot of these donations, these gifts of extremely expensive vacations, come from a particular right-wing businessman. His name is Harlan Crow. He is a big real estate businessman out of Texas and a longtime member of a number of right-wing think tanks and political organizations in the United States. For example, he's a longtime member of the Club for Growth, the American Enterprise Institute, and also attends the Bohemian Grove, which is a sort of boomer generation, all-male, super-powerful men gathering. He also apparently collects historical memorabilia, including apparently a lot of pieces from the Nazi era, including two Hitler paintings and a signed copy of Mein Kampf. For the news in the United States, the right-wing online groups in the United States have been pivoting, at least some of them, toward a new and growing trend about couching their right-wing rhetoric through the lens of fitness and self-help organizations. These types of organizations are calling themselves, quote, active clubs. And it's a sort of reframing of the way that the Proud Boys operate. You know, the Proud Boys claim to be essentially a, like a club, like a gang, you know, like a little street gang. And they like fight each other and, you know, mess around and fool around and stuff. Active clubs are sort of a more fitness oriented version of this. You know, they talk about diet suggestions and workout plans and then sneak in rhetoric about white supremacism afterwards. Moving on to India, Rahul Gandhi, the former leader of the Indian Opposition Party, the Indian National Congress, has been appealing his removal from the Indian Parliament. Recall that in the last couple of weeks, he was removed from the Indian Parliament because of his conviction in a defamation case involving the surname Modi. Now, the Prime Minister of India is Modi, that, that is his surname, and his surname is also shared by an ethnic group in India which is denoted in Indian law as a group of people that cannot be defamed, you know, people who have a sort of legal protection. Gandhi made a joke about Modi being a thief. His, his joke was, why are all of these thieves last named Modi? And the Indian legal system has interpreted this joke as a case of defamation against the people who belong to this ethnic subgroup. Gandhi has appealed this removal, and the hearing is taking place today, actually. He faces further court cases for the same defamation content, however, and it remains to be seen exactly how this is going to shake out. Continuing on in India, 
historians and other scholars and teachers in India are seriously criticizing the Indian government for the changes it has been making to India's educational system and specifically its history education. They've been removing all non-nationalist sources from the Indian textbook. For example, the Indian government body that defines what goes on in an Indian textbook has been removing references to the Mughals, the Muslim rulers of India at the beginning of British imperialism, because of course the Indian government right now is a Hindu nationalist government, and their goal is to pretend that Islam is some foreign entity that doesn't belong in India, despite the fact that there have been Muslims in India for 1,000 years. You know, it's, it's not something new, right? It's not a new imposition. They've also been revising the history of the ruling party, the BJP, and the quasi-fascist organization that it is deeply connected to, the RSS. For example, ignoring the RSS's connections to the assassination of Mohandas Gandhi, the famous nonviolent Indian independence leader. His assassin was a former member of the RSS, the same organization that gave birth to the BJP. It's also ignoring Mohandas Gandhi's own opposition to Hindu nationalism. Gandhi himself was famously opposed to building an Indian state based on Hinduism. He wanted to create an Indian state that could be a home to anybody who lived in India, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Jain, Buddhist, Christian, everybody. This has really laid open the, the degree to which the BJP is trying to revise not just Indian history, but also people's conceptions of what India is. It's trying to make sure that not just the people who attend their right-wing schools, because the RSS runs a lot of right-wing private schools in India, but trying to make sure that the people who attend public schools in India are also getting exactly the same kind of racist, nationalist indoctrination. Moving on to Brazil, the Brazilian government is set to investigate several generals and a bunch of other military personnel regarding the capital invasion in that country on January the 8th of this year. Now recall that on January the 8th of this year, right after the inauguration of the current president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, the Bolsonaro supporters, people who did not like the fact that Lula won against Bolsonaro, invaded the Brazilian capital square. This capital square in Brazil, in the capital of Brasilia, contains the government offices of all three major branches of the Brazilian national government. That is the executive branch, the legislature, and the judicial branch. The Brazilian federal government has been taking this incredibly seriously. They were immediately investigating all of the people who were involved in this capital invasion. They immediately arrested a lot of people, and they suspended the, the work of a lot of the people who were supposedly in charge of the security for this event. And now they are summoning these 89 military personnel to be investigated, to, to appear before the court. Among these military personnel who are giving testimony and being investigated by the Brazilian judicial system include the former commander of the Planalto, which is the name of the office building of the Brazilian president, so you know the equivalent of the White House. Also, some of that guy's like subsidiaries and flunkies are also part of the people who are being investigated, as well as other people who were in high security regarding the timing of the January 8th attempted coup. The hearing is part of the government's ongoing and extremely direct investigation into this attempted coup. The question is essentially, how much did these military personnel know about this attempted coup before it happened? Could they have prevented it? Did they sort of like step aside and let it go ahead? Or even worse, were they possibly involved in the planning of it? Is it possible that they knew about it or that they knew that their subordinates knew about it or that their subordinates knew about it and they didn't figure it out? And, you know, it's just gross misconduct and 
failure to execute their offices as opposed to actually, actually participating in planning a coup. That remains to be seen, and that's precisely what the Brazilian judicial system is trying to figure out. Moving on to Myanmar, the government of that country, which is the result of a military coup that happened in February of 2021, has conducted an airstrike against a civilian target. It has been doing this since it took over the country, because there are lots of civilians in Myanmar that are rising up against this military government because of its elimination of democracy and because of its horrible human rights abuses. This particular attack, however, is probably the most deadly that that military government has perpetrated in the two years that it has held on to control of Myanmar. The village that they attacked is in the north of Myanmar. It is called Pazigi. It was holding a meeting to organize the defense against the military government. Current estimates hold that over 100 people were killed in this attack. This is far more than the number of people who live in that village because of this meeting, because of this meeting planning to organize opposition to the military government, a lot of people from other villages were present in that town as well. This attack has been condemned by the international community, both in the United States and Europe, but it remains to be seen whether the military government of Myanmar will face any real consequences for its human rights abuses. Moving on to Germany, the German state is threatening Twitter, the online social media platform, with a bunch of fines for not removing illegal content. Now, in Germany, there are a bunch of laws about how to police online content. Germany has extremely strict human rights abuse laws. It has extremely strict hate crimes laws and extremely strict hate language laws. And Germany is alleging that Twitter has violated these terms. Specifically, the Federal Office of Justice in Germany has started proceedings against Twitter based on a German law that requires online companies and other media companies to remove content that is illegal to display in Germany. They are required to respond to these requirements to remove these claims within 24 hours. So in Germany, a user would flag something as being illegal, and the company is supposed to remove it within 24 hours. Twitter was reasonably okay about this prior to its takeover by Elon Musk, but as he eliminated almost all of the trust and safety people involved in Twitter at the time, and almost all the people whose job it was to do this kind of content monitoring and removing fascist content and neo-Nazi shit, this means that Twitter has gotten a lot worse at this. Among the types of speech and claims and images that are part of this investigation by Germany are hate speech, personal threats, defamation, and anti-Semitic content, all of which are illegal for an online media company to display in the country of Germany. For this single count, Twitter faces a fine of $50 million, but based on certain accounts of this story, it seems to me like they might be liable for a fine of $50 million per infraction. Somebody who speaks and reads German, you know, you might have a better idea about this story. I'm getting it secondhand from English language sources, so please correct me if I'm wrong. However, I would love to hear that Elon Musk's company could be fined upwards of $20 billion, Elon Musk's claimed valuation of Twitter, half of what he bought it for. You know, I, I would love to hear that they might be liable for that kind of a fine for their failure to police anti-Semitism and neo-Nazism on the platform. Finally, going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we are talking about Mexico in the 1920s and 30s, we're talking about a man named Jose Antonio Urquiza, who is the founder of the Unión Sinarquista Nacional, the National Sinarchist Union. 
Jose Antonio was born in Querétaro in 1904 to an extremely wealthy family, an agricultural family, which was hit hard by land expropriation from the Mexican Revolution. The Mexican Revolution was at least in part motivated by the needs of peasants and agricultural workers to actually own or have any possibility of owning and living on their land. And the Urquiza family was a major land-owning family in Querétaro, and they faced a lot of problems from this. Jose Antonio spent much of his youth in a right-wing Catholic organization, and a branch of this organization eventually split off and became the Sinarquistas. The Sinarquistas are Mexico's largest and most important fascist group from the early 20th century. Urquiza was part of a group that drafted their manifesto in 1937. While it is claimed that Urquiza himself pretended to be apolitical, you know, he just thought of himself as like a Catholic civic person, that's patently ridiculous, right? The Sinarquistas were a fascist organization. Specifically, they were a clerical fascist group that believed in the power and influence of the Catholic Church above all else. They were seriously opposed to communism and anything remotely like it, including and specifically the, at the time, relatively leftist ruling party of Mexico, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, also known as the PRI. So for the Sinarquistas, their ideology is a lot more like the Austro-fascists or the Falange in Spain, rather than the Nazis or even the Italian fascists. They believed in Catholicism, they believed in morality, and they believed in anti-communism. They were not entirely set on the mass party political organizing thing, but they were trying to move Mexican politics away from the leftist direction that it was heading at the time in the 1930s. Urquiza himself was not a leader of men. He was more of a behind-the-scenes guy. This was partly due to his stutter, which prevented him from engaging in public speaking. However, he remained active on the internal circles of the Sinarquistas until his death. He was murdered, apparently non-politically, by an agricultural worker that was working on his land. And by non-politically, I mean non-partisan, right? It wasn't a leftist that assassinated him. Instead, it was a, an agricultural worker who was working on his land who killed him because of the mistreatment that he and his fellow workers were experiencing at the behest of the Urquiza family. The Sinarquistas lived on for the rest of the 1930s and 40s, although they essentially fell out of favor and out of influence in the 1950s with a couple small revivals. So that is the life of Jose Antonio Urquiza, killed this week in history by stabbing, April 11th, 1938. So, Jose Antonio Urquiza, we will see you in hell. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon on patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me at Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right, that's H I S T of the right, and fascism15. Thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>